And if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you can multitask. If you can multitask and uh, turn to Matthew 5, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. The passage scripture is also uh, in our bulletin. And so as we are doing that, uh, I'm going to ask our ushers to come and collect our giving. Uh, and just a reminder, if it's your first time or you're a guest with us, man, we do not want your money. Uh, we pray that this service and your time with us is a real blessing and a gift. Uh, but if you're a member and a regular tender, may you continue to give uh, and give generously. And so as they come and collect our giving, let me give you a little preface into what we're going to be doing this morning, and this will take us all the way to the end of May. And so if you're just joining us, we're working through the book of Matthew, and we have gotten to a, a, a part in Matthew where there's a transition of kind of like um, of, of a transition in the book. And so there are four kind of major teachings that Matthew uh, uses, kind of takes a step out spends some time teaching, and then jumps back into the narrative, takes a step out, does some teaching of Jesus, jumps back into the narrative, does that four times. Uh, we're looking at one of them, uh, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. There you go. It covers chapters 5 and 7. It's one of, the, one of the most famous teachings of Jesus. And so we're going to be spending the next several weeks in this, uh, this Sermon on the Mount. And so you can tell that by the, the visual here uh, of kind of a transition of what we're, what we're doing here. And so if I had to say here's the question that I think Jesus is answering and the question and I'm hoping to answer over these next several weeks is uh, give us a definition of what is the good life and so it's a, it's it's language that I use a lot here right so I, I I say this often that that God has come to uh, usher us into a relationship with the son Jesus so that we can live the good life he's defining for us what the good life is and empowering us to live in that good life and here's the reality. We have probably close to 300 in here, close to 250 or so in the nine. And so that's about 550 adults here this morning. And all 550 of you have different perspectives on what the good life is. You do. None of us will probably have, we have, may have some similarities, but we'll all have different perspectives of what that is. And so what I'm hoping to do, because I do think this is what Jesus is doing, all right? So if, if the kingdom has come, with Jesus stepping into the scene, what he does in these next two chapters is, makes sense. He's telling us, all right, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. So I'm the king, and this is what it looks like for you to live under my reign and rule. This is what, it, what the good life is. This is what the flourishing life is. This is how a human is supposed to live. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so I'm hoping that over the next several weeks as we're in this sermon that we will have sort of a, um, a similar understanding of what the good life is, not because Lyle defined it, but because Jesus is defining it for us. And um, my guess is that it's going to be kind of uh, a surprise. It's not going to be what you expect. And, um, and it's supposed to be like that. He's going to confront us and kind of punch us in the gut a little bit. And so... Um, and I think you'll feel that even this morning as we look at um, what we call the Beatitudes, all right? So if you're able, why don't you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 12. And so when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on this, the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I just ask that, um, that you would help us see this passage in kind of fresh eyes today. Um, we have a way of kind of going to default settings when we read the Bible, and um, it loses some of the, the shock, the surprise of what Jesus is saying here. So help us to feel that this morning, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I, I'm going to uh, do a little visual today, all right? So, and, and I, this may feel a little childish, but that's okay. I'm embracing my childlikeness, going back to my student ministry days, which I've learned translates a lot in being a pastor. Amen? So, um, and so here's, here's what I want to say, and I think... Um, Sort of this visual that I'm going to give you this morning is a visual I want to kind of keep in front of us as we work through the Sermon on the Mount uh, because I think it's, it's the starting point. And, and if we don't keep this visual kind of in mind, um, then the Sermon on the Mount can be kind of dangerous for you, spiritually speaking. Um, it can be interpreted in a very wrong way and, and possibly can kind of send you in a spiral uh, that you don't want to go. And it's not going to be helpful, all right? So the prophet Ezekiel gives us this kind of picture of why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And when I say new covenant, uh, for best way to explain that, it's just the new work that God is through, doing through his son, Jesus Christ. All this thing that we're talking about in Matthew and all the New Testament is this new covenant that God has inaugurated. And so the Ezekiel is giving us a, a vision of one of the reasons why the new covenant is so better than the old covenant. And basically what he says here is that um, at conversion, so whenever uh, we respond in repentance and faith and we put our faith and trust in Christ, uh, there's a miracle that takes place. And it's not literal, it's figuratively, right? There's a new heart. You have a kind of a heart transplant. And so before conversion, I'll use that language, all right? It means becoming a Christian. For conversion, you had a heart of stone. So you had kind of an aversion to God. Uh, anytime you heard God's commands or God's desires for you, they weren't received with kind of palms out. They were received with kind of fist up. You didn't want it. Your heart was like a stone, like a rock, not moldable, not, not wanting the things of God. This is what your heart, metaphorically speaking, looked like before you came to faith in Christ. Now, when conversion happened, it says God changed your heart of stone 
into a heart of flesh. Now, Paul uses flesh in a negative way. That's not what Ezekiel's doing here. Paul uses flesh to talk about your sin. Ezekiel's talking more about your own core of your being, who you are. That at conversion, it went from being a hard rock to flesh, kind of like Play-Doh. It's moldable. It's tender. It's kind of more open-handed to where when you hear the voice of Jesus and you hear like what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, these sort of commands, this teaching of Jesus, because of conversion, you're not receiving them with a heart of stone. You're tender. You want to hear. You're moldable. And so look, this is, this is why, especially here, I'll give you a couple reasons why I think this visual is very important for us to keep in mind and sort of the starting point for us all as we work through this Sermon on the Mount. And I'll give you a couple reasons that are here in uh, the Beatitudes on why this needs to be in the forefront of our minds. And, and I think as we work through these reasons, it'll hopefully unpack this text. So the first reason why is this, that what, um, what Jesus is doing with these Beatitudes, so, so to speak, these first 12 verses, is he is inviting us into a way of being. Okay? Did you hear that? It's very important that you get this. Jesus is inviting us into a way of being. The Beatitudes are not um, um, entrance requirements to get into the kingdom, nor are they what you have to do in order to get God's blessings. Jesus, with these Beatitudes, is inviting you into a way of being in this world. Now, where in the world do you get this idea, Lyle? Well, it's all rooted in that word blessed. It's used nine times in these first 12 verses here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the hung those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. So if you don't get this word blessed, then you're not going to understand what Jesus is inviting you into. And bless is a really difficult word to translate uh, from Greek to English. And so I'm not, I'm always, look, I'm really cautious on, on any time I say, hey, this is not the best word to translate it because I never want to cast doubt in the confidence and the accuracy of our English translation. Thank God for our English translations, and they are by and far accurate, and you'd be confident and trust in them because none of us in this room, or most of us in this room, don't know how to read Greek, all right, including me, even though I had a year of it in seminary. I couldn't, I mean, I can read it, but I have no idea what the stink I'm reading, all right, but here's the thing you got to understand that uh, it's not a direct correlation on all words. Sometimes it's hard to kind of carry the nuance and the complexity of a word that's written in Greek that people understood in that time and translate that directly over to English. 
it gets lost. And blessed is one of those. And one of the reasons why, because blessed means this. Literally, it means this. Happy, blissful, fortunate, or flourishing. So it's not hard to define it. It's more difficult to understand more fully how it's being used here. And so as a Western mindset, which is all of us in this room, we're products of our culture, when we hear the word blessed, our default is to think of divine favor. Are you following me? And the default, this is what's so crazy, it's what I meant by my prayer, that we can even read this, and even as we read it, there's a lens by which we're interpreting it that we get from our culture upbringing, and sometimes family of origin. And so when we read this, we read this, all right? This is what's going on in our head, even though that's not what's coming out of our mouth. If I am poor in spirit, then I'll be blessed by God. If I mourn, then I'll be blessed by God. If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, then I will be blessed by God. If I am merciful, then I will be blessed by God. If I am pure in heart, then I will be blessed by God. If I'm a peacemaker, then I will be blessed by God. That's how we hear this word blessed. We think primarily of divine favor. And it is in part, but not in full. That's not what Jesus is communicating here. He is not telling us, if I do this then I will be blessed. That's why some people uh, will translate it at happy, even though that has problems, right? Another translation, and I kind of like this a little bit better maybe, but even that still has problems, flourishing. Because what Jesus is trying to describe for us is not what I have to do in order to get blessed. What Jesus is declaring for us is those people who are blessed. He is helping us see a way of being that is flourishing. He's helping us see a way of being that is blessed. So if I would come to you this morning and say, you are happy, what am I saying? I'm not saying that I did something to that I gave you happiness, so then therefore you are now happy, right? If I come to you and say you are happy, I'm declaring something about you and your state of being. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. These are not a promise of blessing, but describing for us the true way of being that will result in blessedness, that will result in and happiness that will result in flourishing. One commentator says it like this. Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers, which is us, into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. That is what Jesus is communicating with that word, blessed. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, Lau, I hear you, but um, isn't there a part where I still pursue this? Don't I have to pursue peacemaking, right? Don't I have to pursue grieving? Don't I have to pursue being pure in heart? Don't I have to pursue 
uh, you know, being humble and meek. Like, isn't there a part in that? And I want to say, yes, there is. And I'll get to that in my second point. But here's what I'm trying to emphasize here. It doesn't start with the pursuing. You don't begin with pursuing to be a peacemaker. Because if you start there, then you begin to um, take your relationship with God and make it transactional. And that's a dangerous place to be with a relationship to God because it's never transactional. It's all of grace from beginning to end. And so if I begin to think that first I got to pursue this in order to get God's blessing, then I'm making this relationship about this. It's a transaction. If I do this, then God will do this. If I do this, then God will do this. If I fail, then I'm not going to get that. And that's not at all what's being spoken of here. So what you have to start with is that human flourishing, human happiness begins being rightly related to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's where it starts. Because that's when you get this instead of this bad boy. And so when that happens, guys, and I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth, even though it may sound like I am. When that happens, simultaneously, you become a kind of person, this kind of person, a peacemaker, one who mourns, one who pursues after righteousness, one who is merciful. You become that kind of person, and at the same time, you pursue to be that kind of person. Not in order to get God's blessing because you already have God's blessing because you got Jesus. I will say that again. I wanted to land with you to kind of cause a little emotion, right? So look, look, when you come to faith in Christ, simultaneously you become this kind of person and you also pursue to be this kind of person, not to get the blessing of God because you already got it. The blessing of God is Jesus. He could give you nothing more than His own Son. And if you have Jesus, this is the blessed life. This is the flourishing life. So I don't have to live up to being a peacemaker. I don't have to live up to being mournful. I live into. Eugene Peterson says this so well. That's where I get it from. In his little book called, I uh, love this title, Eat This Book, A Conversation in the Art of Spiritual Reading, talking about how to read the Bible. He says this, captures this whole way so good. That's what Eugene Peterson does. Uh, he says this, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and say, live up to it. Nor does the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what I mean. Because look, stop right there. Stop reading. I know you're reading. Stop reading. Right? This is what I mean. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount as something you've got to live up to, then good luck. You'll, you'll go one of two directions, as Tim Keller says. You're going to be one depressed, despaired Christian, or you're going to be one prideful, arrogant, self-righteous Christian. Because you can't live up to this. I mean... We'll get there. The Sermon on the Mount is not to make you feel good about yourself. It's not to make you go, I'm killing it. 
It'll humble you. And that's exactly what it's supposed to do. So back to the quote, even though most of you have already read it, but I'm going to read it out loud anyways. Here it goes. Not live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, hey, think like this and you will live well. No. Rather, the biblical way or what the Bible says is that it's a story. It tells a story. It's, the Bible's almost 70% narrative. Tells a story. And in telling that, he's inviting us to live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. So why, Eli, is this so important to keep on the front of our minds as we work through this and specifically from this passage? Because Jesus is inviting you into a way of being and your way of being can't change by you doing something. Jesus comes in and changes your way of being that empowers you to pursue to be this kind of person. It's not giving us the entrance requirements, nor is it giving us these nine things that we got to do to get God's blessings. No, Jesus is saying, this is a way of being in my world. So, which leads us to come the second thing. If you're reading this passage with some honesty, which I'm praying all of us are, hopefully you're realizing this doesn't sound very flourishing. I mean, most scholars say that the question that Jesus is answering here is, is what does it mean to be happy? What does it look like to live the happy life? And if you look at this list, they don't look real happy. Which leads me to my second point. Happiness or flourishing does not come about in the way that we would expect. You see, we read this list with a very positive lens because Jesus said it. I mean, if you don't go to church that much, you've probably heard this list before. And you kind of see it in a little bit of a positive light because, well, Jesus said it. It's got to be good, Right? But if we would take that away, if we would just take this list, get it away from the Bible, have no idea who authored it, and put it on a wall with a big thing at the top, how to live a happy life, and you list all those, I guarantee every single one of us would go, no way, right? That is craziness. I mean, look at these. I'll just give you a few. I mean, there's one that's more positive, pure in heart, but the rest of them are, are they have a negative tone. There's a darker tone to this. Blessed are those who mourn, lament, grieve, specifically talking about sharing the sufferings of others rather than avoid them. That's the happy life. Blessed are those who are humble. I mean, we look at humility in a good light because our culture has adopted this virtue even though in this time humility was not a good virtue you avoided it just like we avoid arrogance and this time you avoided humility and you pursued arrogance verse 7 blessed are the merciful i mean it's really easy to extend mercy to someone who deserves mercy 
Can I get like one amen? So I don't feel like I'm all alone up here, right? Does it, is this real happy feeling when you're extending mercy towards someone who doesn't deserve your mercy but actually deserves your revenge? <laughs> Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Same way. It's really easy to be a peacemaker when you've got someone else you're dealing with that wants peace. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, blessed are those who make peace with those or, who, or even their enemies. Then verse 10 is like, all right, man, kick it up a notch, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Then he reads it again in verse 11. Listen what he says here. You are blessed when they insult you. You are blessed when they persecute you. This is the good life, the flourishing life. When you are falsely accused or they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. So are you hearing what he's saying? Is that you could be doing everything right and you can be slandered. And that's the blessed life. That's the happy life. Like, I don't know about you. That doesn't make my list. I mean, if someone would come to you this morning before you knew the sermon and had all the Jesus answers and you said, hey, define for me the happy life. Find for me what it, what it looks like to be flourishing in life. What would come to your mind? I mean, immediately. I got three. Did it this week. Just to myself. As I'm thinking about this, and here's the three. There's probably more than this, but there's, here's the three, all right? One was, man, when my wife and I are all hitting on all cylinders, life is good, right? But when things are a little rocky, kind of like the stock market, you got to check it all the time. It's like, what's going on in our relationship, right? But when things are not good, everything else is not good, right? My life, Kathy and I are not on the same page with something. All hell is breaking loose in every other element of my life, right? I'm angry everywhere for crying out loud, Amen? But man, we're, we're, if we're kicking, oh, I can handle almost anything. Life is sticking good, right? Next thing that came to my mind was kids. You know, if they're somewhat healthy, right? You know, somewhat is, is always relative depending on the season. You know, like right now, Davin's home with a big strep throat and looks horrible, you know, sinus infection. And so is my wife. She's got a sinus infection. So it's just wonderful, healthy home right now. Amen. Um, but yeah, kids are healthy, and you know, they got somewhat healthy relationships, seem to be doing somewhat well at school, you know, they're not doing anything stupid or dumb that's making me stay up at night, right? They're not engaging in foolish, ignoramus behavior. You know, when that's, when that's happening, life is good, right? Amen? When there's no surprises was the third thing that came to my mind. And what I mean by surprises, we all have these, these little things you never planned for but they happen your car breaks down you got to drop $500 to fix it you know a tree falls in your yard and shatters your siding on your side of your house like can't plan for that for crying out loud even your little thousand dollar emergency fund Dave Ramsey doesn't cover my deductible for crying out loud right sometimes I just want to punch him but I want to be a peacemaker because I want to be a way of being right I think you guys know what I'm saying what about you what makes your list? One writer put three. He said this. Free from annoyance. 
I would add, free from annoying people. Amen? And if you're wondering who the annoying people are, just raise your hand. Everybody's annoying, right? I'm annoying to someone in this world, right? When they think of annoying, they got Lyle, right? And you're on someone's list also, amen? Yeah. Another thing they put down was get kind of what they desire, what they hope for, what they dream of. They leave a joyful, kind of easy life. And then Jesus comes in and says, no. That's not the flourishing life. That's not the good life. That's not happiness. So, so what, are you, what, is, what are you saying, Lyle? And then what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that, you know, I've got to kind of put this little happy face on and be happy, clappy Christianity all the time? Ah, my world's falling apart, and I'm just completely detached emotionally, and I'm just, ah, wonderful. Is that, is that what you're saying? Are you just saying, man, we just got to grin it and bear it and, and kind of fake a smile? Oh, happy life, yeah. No, it, it's not. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either. But what Jesus is trying to help us see is that it's not about our present state or circumstances that makes it the flourishing life. It's what is coming in the future that makes it the flourishing life. Because of what is coming in the future, then we're able to come back into the present and see our present circumstances and situation in a whole different light. That's how these work together. Blessed are the mournful. Why? Why? Here's the promise. I mean, you see that? I mean, get your bulletin out. If you got your own Bible, mark up your Bible. It's good for you to mark your Bible up, all right? Even if it's a nice little Bible, mark it up. Look what he says there. Listen to all these promises. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are comforted. You inherit the earth. You will be filled. Literally, you will be stuffed. You will be shown mercy. You will see God. You will see God. You will be called sons of God. And your reward will be great. That's why... It's a flourishing life. Not because your present circumstances and situation is pleasant or joyful or happy, so to speak, but because of what's coming in the future that then redefines for us. It's almost like Jesus saying, look, I'm giving you a whole new pair of glasses to put on so that you see your present circumstance in a very different way. So instead of you allowing the culture to define for you the good life and the happy life and the flourishing life, I'm giving you a whole new lens by which most of us would say, this is not what is happy, right? This is not what is, this seems like a barrier into the good life. And Jesus is going, no, not because of what's coming in the future helps you put on a different set of lenses and see that very differently. It's actually is the flourishing life. So, Lau, are you, are you saying that 
Jesus is just saying, you know, when life gets you lemons, just make, say it out loud, lemonade. No. There may be a little truth in that. I, I think what Jesus is saying is that he's wanting us to see the lemons in a whole new way because of what we know is coming in the future. It's a whole different kind of perspective that he's wanting you to see. And that's what he's going to do in the Sermon on the Mount over and over. He's going to challenge your assumptions. He's going to show you your default and how your default is wrong. That it's off. That the way that you've been defining and pursuing after the happy life is wrong. Your dictionary is wrong. That's what Jesus is coming and saying. Even though in all of us, we feel this resistant. Even though we got a new heart, right? It's not perfect yet. They're still a little resistant. That really, Jesus, that this is really the flourishing life? That this is really the happy life? I mean, guys, look at me. I feel it even now. Like even walking up here this morning or getting ready for the whole day, I'm just going, I feel like I'm, I'm opening up elements here that I can't fully close up, right? I feel like there's all kinds of questions that I'm even asking about this that I can't give a full answer to. And part of that is because I'm still in process of really saying, is this for real? That when something goes wrong in my world, and I don't know if it is the same for your world, some of the first questions that I ask is, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And what Jesus is trying to do here, he's trying to kind of correct that seeing and basically saying, maybe, Lyle, you're not doing anything wrong. Maybe you're doing what is right. And that's what the flourishing life looks like in this world. That what I've defined as the happy, good life is wrong, is off. I think Peter, um, in his epistle, his first few verses there in chapter 1, I, I think he tries to sum up these first 12 verses here. It's almost like his, uh, him digesting this truth and then writing a journal entry about it. All right, it's kind of what... I feel like it's happening here. Look what he says here, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So to, to translate that, it's this. That's what he's talking about. You've been given new life, new birth into a living hope. You've gone from a heart of stone to now having a heart of flesh. And he goes on, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, this is important. You rejoice in this. Stop. 
what is this? Am I rejoicing in my current circumstance? I mean, can. But what is he specifically talking about? That this is, you're in Jesus. That's what he said there. You are in Christ. You've been birthed into a living hope. Rejoice in that. Secondly, it doesn't end there. That's wonderful, but that's not God. He always gives us more than we ever think or imagine. You rejoice in the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It ain't going anywhere. Excuse my English, right? It ain't going anywhere. Not going to rot away. No one's going to steal it. Right? It's waiting for you. And then thirdly, you rejoice in, guess what? God is guarding you to make sure you get to the end. So I don't have to live in stress and anxiety. Am I going to make it? Yes, you will. Because you are in Christ. And God is guarding you to make sure you make it to the end. Rejoice in this. And then look what Peter says. Even though, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you're suffering grief and various trials. I think you can put all the Beatitudes in the various trials. Because sometimes it's hard and difficult and painful to be a peacemaker. To be one who shares in the sufferings of others. To be one who extends mercy when they don't deserve mercy. So, what do we do with this? I'm just going to give you a kind of one thing, all right? And then we're done. My, I'll give you two. One is this. I would encourage you to go home and think on this. Chew on what Jesus is saying here. I mean, he's, he's speaking some really um, counterintuitive, unnatural things for us. But if this is true, if the flourishing life, if life in the full, as John describes it, if the happy life, if this is true, right? then I'm not going to step back when I have an opportunity to extend mercy. I'm going to step forward. Even though it may be really painful. Why? Because Jesus says that's the flourishing life. So I'm not going to step back when I have an opportunity to reconcile a relationship. As far as it depends on me, I'm going to step forward. I'm going to go pursue. I'm going to say, you know what? I may have wronged you. I probably said this, should have said it. My tone was wrong. Why? Why am I doing that? Yeah, it might be painful. It might be really hard. But Jesus said, this is the flourishing life. This is the good life. So when someone is suffering, and in pain, because this is hard. Instead of stepping back to kind of avoid them, Jesus is saying, I'm going to step toward. 
and I'm going to share in their suffering. I'm going to carry their burden. Why? Because Jesus has said, this is the flourishing life. So, do you believe this? Do you believe it is true? Then may, by God's power, we step in and trust him. This is an invitation to a way of being. You first come to him. You don't pursue these beatitudes first. And happiness does not come like we expect it to come. He's totally redefining it. Do I believe him? Do I trust him? Let's pray together.